Grab your Bibles, uh, please turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 26 of Luke chapter 5. And this is as good a time as any uh, to say that preaching through the Gospels, preaching through narrative is different from preaching through the epistles. Uh, The epistles give you a logical structure. Uh, The Gospels are structured very intentionally and very carefully, but sometimes the logic isn't spelled out for you exactly. So it becomes more difficult to determine what chunks you want to take, and I'm well aware that we're actually going to be looking at three chunks this morning that could individually be a full-length sermon, but then we might miss some of the wider contours of the construction of the book, and we might also be in Luke until I retire, and I don't really want uh, to do that. Uh, I want to work through other passages in Scripture as well. Uh, So we're going to be working through three units. And just so you know, I I try to be very careful about not uh, using too much, too many terms drawn from sort of theological circles. Uh, In biblical studies, each one of these units is referred to as a pericope, and so if I sort of slip up and use that language, uh, I'm, that's what it means. Uh, pericope is just a fancy word in biblical studies for a unit, because if you said unit, then everyone would know that you really don't know that much about it, so you have to have a fancy word to make it seem impressive. So if I say, you know, in this pericope, it's just because that's ingrained uh, in my mind, but I just mean the narrative unit, Okay. Pericope number one, (laughs) Luke chapter five. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, Don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. 
Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Perhaps the the over-familiarity with the story slightly dulls the sense of wonder. But there's a miraculous catch of fish. A man was healed from leprosy. And Jesus forgave sins and made a paralytic walk. I partly feel tempted to say, just go home and think about that. But then you'd get used to short sermons, and I don't want that. So we'll, we'll go a little bit further. Uh, but that in itself, the, these things are what Jesus did. It's, it's just absolutely incredible. Uh, he did these things that Luke records. Uh, before we look at these uh, together, let's pray. Our Father, we would ask that by your Spirit, you will help us to understand uh, your word, help us to see the connections uh, in these events, help us to, uh, in the end, uh, respond the way the crowd did, with awe and praise and rejoicing. Lord, you are a great God. You are so much greater than we can possibly imagine or comprehend. And Father, in a small way, we just ask that you will enlarge our capacity to know you. Help us to know you better. Uh, Father, I would pray in a special way, Lord, for those who are not here this morning, who wish that they could be, uh, those who are sick with a variety of ailments, and for their friends and family, uh, their loved ones. Father, I just pray for them, uh, that you will bring healing in the body, uh, and Lord, also that you will give strength and encouragement uh, in the hearts and in the spirits of your children. Uh, Father, I pray that we, uh, as a church, will be a place where uh, every single one is truly cared for, uh, that we will be a place where everyone is prayed for, uh, a place where needs uh, matter to us, 
Father, we would think in a special way of, of the on-site program and, and not because of the programming, uh, but because of the opportunities to build relationships and talk about you, uh, to share your love and light uh, in the world. We pray that you will prepare hearts even now uh, to come and to hear your truth of the gospel of Jesus. And we would be so bold, Lord, as to pray that you will open hearts and that you will incorporate uh, and integrate people into this church. Uh, asking that, we, we ask that you will make us a healthy church in which they can be integrated, uh, that we can be a safe place, a wholesome place, a holy place, uh, where people who have just come to know you uh, can see modeled Christian maturity and grace and, and patience on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will uh, revive us and renew us, uh, cause us to be uh, a people uh, proclaiming your praises in word and in deed. Uh, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, these these three narrative uh, sections, probably familiar uh, with all of them. The first, of course, you know, Jesus encounters Peter, you know, or, or a professional fisherman you know, encounters uh, Jesus. Verse 1 is very interesting. We're told that the people are crowding around him, and they're listening to the word of God. Uh, Luke uses this sort of phraseology so often it's easy to miss. In fact, Jesus, as we've mentioned before in Luke, is just so often teaching. And Luke doesn't often give the content of his teaching, but he will just mention in context, Jesus was teaching, or Jesus went there to teach, or Jesus went to this area to preach. So the word of God proclaimed and taught is absolutely central to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And here you see a crowd of people gathered to hear the word of God. And that needs to be something which characterizes us as well. You know, we need to be people who passionately long to hear the word of God. Uh, of course, uh, Jesus, you know, God in human flesh, is not on earth anymore. Uh, but the Holy Spirit has been given. The word of God has been given. Uh, the canon of scripture is closed. So this is the, this is the total special revelation of God, uh, in verbal form or in word. And so this is something that we can study and read and pour over and meditate upon and digest and take down into the deepest part of who we are. So we don't gather to sit and listen to the physical human voice of Jesus, but we do have the opportunity, as often as we want it, to gather to listen to the words of Jesus, the very word of God here in in Scripture. And so this is something that you can do you know, on, on a Monday on your lunch break. You know, this is something that you can do any time. The Word of God, you know, in, in all of its translations, in all of its many forms. Uh, in fact, I even hear, although I don't know how to, uh, I think the, the cool kids say, uh, download apps, you know. I, I don't know how to do that, but I hear you can even get your Bible on a phone, you know. And Nathan is texting and he's on Facebook, but he's holding up a phone to say, yes, you can. <laughs> so theoretically, even when you use, yeah, that's right. Even when you, you know, you're doing something else, you can feel 
good that your Bible is on your phone, right? It, it could be accessed if you so felt inclined, right? So, I mean, the portability, the ability to take the Word of God anywhere, at any time, to have access to it. I mean, you can you can get it recorded. You can listen to it read to you. It, it's, it's an amazing thing. And of course, in the psalmist and other places, we find that really the best way of carrying the Word of God is to actually learn it in your mind and in your heart so that wherever you are, you can meditate and draw deeply on the truth and Word of God. And so they were listening to Jesus, and uh, Jesus preaches, and then he tells Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now, Simon answered, this is something that is interesting, because he's a professional fisherman. Jesus isn't, okay? Jesus is a carpenter, and of course, and we have to be a little bit careful with that too. And the, the word you know, that we translate as carpenter is a little bit more expansive than that. It's it's someone who works with wood, works with stone, sort of like a Jesus would be sort of a general contractor. He's the kind of person, uh, Joseph. You know, they could go to a job site, and it's not just that they can do uh, sort of cabinetry or, or make you a table. It's not just woodwork. It's the kind of work you need to do to build and fix. And so it's not just wood, it's more expansive uh, than that. He's a workman. And he's not a fisherman. Peter's a fisherman. And because they have boats and hired men, he's, he's a pretty good one. So Jesus comes to him, and Jesus doesn't approach Peter to, to demonstrate his lordship in an area in which Peter knows nothing about. He comes to demonstrate his lordship in Peter's area of strength. You know, this is the one thing, humanly speaking, that Peter knows a lot more about than Jesus, humanly speaking. And you can see this almost conflict with Peter here, where he says, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. So the, the nets that they were using, you know, they were washing their nets, is you know, they're sort of nets that would drop down with weights on the bottom, it's just form like a vertical wall. And if you know anything about fishing, uh, you do know that fish have different patterns in the day, uh, in morning, afternoon, evening, and throughout the night. So Peter knows how to catch fish. And their technique was, in this case, you let down sort of a wall of nets at night, and you would you know, make noise on the surface of the water. And with, your, with the boats, you sort of drive or frighten the fish, schools, into the nets where they'd be caught, and you'd pull them up. This technique did not work in the day, because once it was light, of course, the fish have different patterns, but also the fish could see the nets, and they would avoid them. So Peter's saying, listen, we've, we've been fishing here all night. It's not the night anymore. This is not the right time to fish. Master, we've been working hard. We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. That's the professional fisherman speaking. But because you say so, that's... That's the person beginning reluctantly to learn a little bit about discipleship speaking. Lord, this doesn't make sense. But if you say so. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. I wonder some, sometimes in our lives, you know, are those sorts of areas where we'll follow Jesus in the areas that we don't know about, but when it comes to finances and budget, Lord, tithing, giving, on paper, that doesn't make sense. You know, master, you know, I've, I've worked through my budget. You know, I, I don't know, I don't have room for that. Because you say so. Okay, Lord. Okay, 
whatever the area is, whatever the demands, whatever you ask, it might not make sense to me, but you're the Lord. Okay, you said it. We'll do it. They catch an enormous number of fish, so much that the nets begin to break. Now, this is an incredible surprise to them. And the thing with narrative, too, and I'm not good at this. Uh, it's funny. Some of you looked up, you know, when I said that. Uh, you know, what, what am I not good at? Well, many, many things. Uh, the one thing I'm not very good at is I'm not very good at sort of describing uh, and setting you know, sort of the mood for these narratives. I'm not sure if you ever listened to, uh, you know, Chuck Swindoll uh, preach on the radio or he can he can make you feel like you're there right he, he can just describe things uh, in just a captivating way uh, and I can't so you know it, what you need to do those you need to try to enter into what it would be like and so if you've ever you know been out on a boat if you've ever been canoeing if you ever you know been doing anything like that you try to imagine so you're actually out on the water and you try to imagine like what would it be like you know if you're expecting to catch nothing and all of a sudden there's so many fish in the nets that they're starting to break and you need to signal your partners to come and help you i don't quite know what that's like but it's probably an extraordinary sort of thing, right? And and there's there's certain sounds and smells and sights that go along with that. And this is a real event in history. That is, there was a day in time when this happened. And notice Peter's response. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. This seems to be the most surprising thing in the narrative to me. Because you might think, as a professional fisherman, uh, which when it's your when it's your business, you know, you might think of saying, Lord, let's be partners. You know, like, Lord, you know, let's how many boats should we hire? Like, this is good. You know, and, and Peter's response is nothing, he's not even talking about the fish. Not even Lord, how did you know that? How is that possible? Lord, go away. That's the last thing you think he would say. Go away. For I am a sinful man. Well, what on earth does the fish have to do with Peter's moral standing before God. I mean, he, he was a sinful man before they caught fish, right? Peter knows that he is in the presence of holiness. This is the same sort of response you get with Moses. It's the same response you get in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has the vision where the the angels are crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah cries out, Woe to me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord. In other words, If you actually have an awareness of who you are and the Lord reveals himself to you, the response has to be one 
of terror and woe. How can I stand in the presence of a holy God? And it's that, it's that holiness which shows you how far you fall short. In other words, it's the light that shows the blackness of the dark. It's the moral purity which shows the defilement inside. And so when Peter is around Jesus, he is brought face to face, not with a miracle worker, he is brought face to face with a holy, righteous God. Lord, he says, I cannot be in your presence. It's just like Isaiah. And so what you see in some ways is the response to God himself is now the response to Jesus. How can that be? The response to God himself is the response to Jesus because Jesus is God in human flesh. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Just like Isaiah, he is given a task to do. Go with the message. Go and tell other people about salvation. Then in terms of discipleship, they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, this is fascinating because not only do they leave you know, all of their security and their business, they leave their business after the very greatest day in history in terms of catching fish. So this is not, well, you know, we're bankrupt anyway, and we didn't catch anything last night. Like, let's start a new venture. This is the very best catch they've ever had in their lives. They say, you know what? Following Jesus is better. We're going to leave it all behind, and we're going to follow him. One of the experiences they have in following Jesus is meeting this individual with leprosy. And leprosy was a disease that was destructive physically, uh, emotionally, socially. You, you were ostracized by everyone, and even spiritually. That is, you were considered by the people to be under the curse of God if you had leprosy. And because you were unclean permanently, you were barred from access to the temple, to the priest, and to the worship. So in Leviticus, we actually find out that if you had leprosy, whenever someone walked past you, you had to cover your face, and you had to cry out in a loud voice, unclean, unclean, because if anyone touched you, they became unclean as well. Now, this man violates that protocol by running up to Jesus instead of warning Jesus to stay away. And the only reason he can do this is because he is convinced that Jesus is not like everyone else. So he runs up to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Fascinating here is that he does not entertain doubts about the power of Jesus. He only entertains doubts about the willingness of Jesus. Lord, if you are willing, you can do this. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Probably the first time since his diagnosis that he had ever been touched by a human being. And Jesus says, I am willing. Be clean. Now, in the law, if you were touched by someone who had leprosy, you yourself became unclean according to the law. But here, Jesus does not become unclean by touching the leper. For the first time ever, 
The contagion does not transfer to the person who is clean. The incredible purity of Jesus transfers to the leper. The only person who could ever touch a leper without becoming unclean, according to the law, which demonstrates in some ways Jesus' superiority to the, to, the, to the old covenant law. He's the new lawgiver. He's not under the restrictions of the old covenant law. He transcends them. And he touches this man, and immediately the leprosy leaves him. Now, what's interesting about this, I think there's lots of things that are going on here, right? Uh, but one of the things about it is that leprosy becomes, in Scripture, and in even, you know, even today, there's echoes of this, leprosy becomes a perfect natural metaphor for sin because it defiles everything. You know, in our sin, our problem is that spiritually, we have spiritual leprosy. So that's sort of the metaphor. That's that's a language that's often used. And so to see that Jesus has power over physical leprosy, which is interpreted as the curse of God, demonstrates that here is someone who can take care of our greatest problems. Okay, This attracts an enormous number of people. No doubt. No kidding. But look at verse 16. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And he did that because he did not apparently know about the church growth movement and how to get a big church, right? He doesn't care about the numbers. He doesn't care about the crowd. He's not obsessed with, are there more people listening, you know, to me now than there were a month ago? You know, he's not checking his, you know, the number of times that people listen to his podcast. He's just out ministering, representing God the Father. And sometimes when the crowds get so big and there's too many physical needs of healing so that he can't preach and teach, he leaves. Because he didn't come to be obsessed with how big the ministry was. He came to honor God. And sometimes we, 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 we go the other way. We want to, we want to, you know, we're going to, we're going to count bodies and we're going to, that, that's how we'll know if we're being successful. That's not what Jesus did. I'm not saying that that's completely irrelevant in every possible way, but here Jesus is, is he's not issued in the crowds. This is not his, it's not why he's here. Not why he's here. But he doesn't just withdraw, he withdraws to pray. The power of the ministry of Jesus comes through prayer and seeking the Father. But I don't think that's just it. I don't think that it was just power that Jesus was after. He's after the presence of his Father, that relationship. I really believe that that if you pray for power, if you pray for God to do things, and that's really your fundamental orientation in prayer, then you will invariably not pray very much over time. Because God won't do everything you want him to do. And, and then, well, prayer doesn't work. And we hear things like that. Well, prayer doesn't work. Well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that prayer doesn't get God to do everything that you want him to do? No, well, if that's what you think prayer is designed for, prayer doesn't work. I hate, I hate, to, I hate to break it to you. You know, if you look at prayer as me saying a certain number of things a certain number of times so that God does stuff, it doesn't work that way, right? Jesus teaches disciples, do not pray like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. 
In other words, if I just talk long enough or for enough days, God will do what I want. doesn't work that way. He's not our servant. But we pray for power, but more than that, we pray for God, for relationship, for knowing him, for honoring him, for blessing him, for being like him. Sometimes today, one of the ways that this is expressed is that we need to seek God's face and not just his hand. And we're very good at seeking God's hand. We want him to, to act. But we need to seek God's face, to be like him, to know him, seeking his face and not just his hand. And that's what Jesus is doing. Yes, he's dependent on the Father for power and ministry, but it's not just that. It's cultivating a relationship with his heavenly Father. Jesus goes on in teaching, and the Pharisees and others are gathering around. The, the house is full. And uh, this paralytic's friends bring him. Mark's gospel tells us there's four of them. Imagine one on each corner, carrying the pallet. And uh, they can't get in. So they go up on the roof. And this is not nearly as surprising as it seems today. Uh, in, in Palestine, even, even today, people often spend a great deal, a great amount of time on the roof. Roofs are built. They're flat. You know, they're not designed for, you know, draining off snow in the winter. You know, the ways that, the way that our North American houses are, or roofs rather. And so there were almost invariably stairs on the outside of homes leading up to the roof. So you ever wonder, how did they get up there? Well, they just walked up the stairs. Like, I mean, that was very common. And so then they, they, they dug through the roof. And this is where probably if you're a homeowner, uh, you know, if you're the person who, who's in there, you're hoping that it's a rented home, you know, <laughs> because the roof's being damaged. And I don't know, they had to repair that somehow. Uh, but they let this man who's paralyzed down carefully. I'm assuming it was carefully down. And Jesus sees their faith, and that would almost certainly be the faith of the paralytic and the friends who were willing to go through all of the work of getting him there. And Jesus says something which you're not expecting. Friend, your sins are forgiven, which is not why he went there. And the Pharisees are saying to themselves, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the answer to that is exactly Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one. So how can Jesus forgive sins? It's because he's God. They they get the argument, but they get the wrong conclusion from it. The exact wrong conclusion. He can forgive sins because he is God. And then Jesus says, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is another miracle that he knows. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. Now how can Jesus forgive sins? I'm not sure if you've ever thought of this, but this is actually one of the most shocking. I mean, this idea is not original to me, but I think it's, I think it's true. One of the most shocking things about Jesus is that he goes around forgiving people's sins. Well, who, who does he think he is to do that? Now, I, I, I don't know very much really about, about many of you here, but in, Coming up to four years that I've been here, one of the things I heard before I came and shortly after I came and even to this day is that I hear that, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to slander anyone, but I, I hear that, uh, Kathy and Bonnie Wilson, 
uh, tend to harass referees at the Guelph Storm games. I don't, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I have, I have no idea, but I've, I've heard that from so many multiple sources. I imagine that there must be some level of truth in it, uh, but who knows, right? And, and so, so let's just say that one day, you know, a ref makes a bad call. Which is hard to imagine, but let's just, we'll work with the illustration. And uh, a ref makes a bad call, and let's say that, you know, Kathy and Bonnie then knock the glass over, <laughs> and go over the boards, and, uh, you know, go up and, and take the ref out. Let's just say that that happens. And I'm there, uh, slightly intrigued but horrified as the pastor watching this take place. <laughs> And so I go down onto the ice and, and I go up, you know, to the referee and, uh, you know, I say, are you okay? And then I, I, I say to, to Kathy, I say, you know what? I forgive you for what you did to him. The ref, you don't know what people are going to say when they have a concussion, but let's say that, you know, their wits are gathered about it. The ref is probably going to say, you know, who, who are you to show up and forgive them. They did it to me. You, you can't show up and forgive as a third party and forgive someone for what they did to someone else. You have no right to do it. You're not involved. So how can a third party forgive someone on behalf of someone else? Well, they can't. The only way that you can forgive sin is if the sin has been against you. Every sin is against God. Every sin is against Jesus. And so Jesus is the one who can forgive this man for his sins, no matter what he's done. Because ultimately, sin is not horizontal, although it is that. Fundamentally, it is vertical. That is, fundamentally, the real problem with every single sin is that it is a violation of God's holiness. And so David, after David basically sinned against the entire world, and that's not an exaggeration, uh, when David, as the representative of God, as the king, commits adultery and then arranges for Uriah the Hittite to die, and one of the things we find is that when Uriah died in that battle, which was murder because David arranged it, there were other people who died too. So Joab says, there's a, tell David, there's a bunch of people who died. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite is dead. So David, David wipes out a bunch of people's lives. To cover up his sin. And in Psalm 51, where he's confessing his sin, he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. David, you, you sinned against everyone. You sinned against Uriah, you sinned against, you know, Bathsheba, you sinned against the nation of Israel as their representative, who was supposed to demonstrate, you know, as the son of God in one sense, you're functionally supposed to show people, this is what God is like. This is how God rules and reigns. And as Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, when the Israelite king sinned, he sinned against his nation, but he also hurt the witness that Israel was called to, to the rest of the world. So so there's a sense in which literally David has sinned against the entire world. But fundamentally, he says, Lord, I've sinned against no one but you. Because every sin is ultimately against God. And so Jesus comes along and he says... Friend, your sins are forgiven because every single thing that man ever did that was wrong was done against God. And only God can forgive sin. Now, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. 
saying it doesn't make it true. So how do we know? Well, Jesus heals the man. And you might think about, again, this would actually be very extraordinary. And we have, we have someone here in the front row, Sam McCallum, who I don't think is able to walk today. Right? Not today. Not today. Now just so you know, right, just Sam, you know, broke a leg and tore a tendon in his knee and so he, he's not able to walk. But, just so you know, uh, Lois is adamant that she's not ready for Sam to be home full-time when he's better. So Sam is still going to be on staff as a pastor here into the future. Correct? Yes. So if you're happy about that, say good or something. Yeah. So notice a bunch of people clap, but no one said good, which was the cue. So I don't know. I don't know if that's a bit of a mixed message. Uh, you know, I'm thrilled that uh, you know, Sam's going to be on. So let's say that, that I you know, sort of came down. It's hard for you to imagine me walking down the stairs. But imagine I come down and I say, Sam, I'm so glad that you're here today. And I am. Uh, your sins are forgiven. Right? You're welcome. <laughs> Sam, Sam's coming from, uh, you know, he's from Ireland where they have, they, she'll try to sort out Protestant Catholic sorts of powers in terms of priests and absolving of sins and all the rest. So that's okay. Um, and of course, this is going to be ridiculous if I say something like that. You know that I can't do that, right? So so the fact that someone would be, would be bold enough to say it uh, indicates something. But then if I were to say it, uh, Sam, just so you know I have the power to forgive your sins, I say to you, get up and walk. Now, we practice this, so come on. <laughs> or shake my hand. Yeah, it's about the same. His motor skills are working. Uh, let's be honest. If he actually got up and walked, that is, you would you would never forget that. Like, is that not obvious? It would be the most amazing thing that you had ever seen, right? And. Yet, what's even more amazing, the real miracle here is not that Jesus makes the man walk. The real miracle is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. The walking is only, it's just a sign that the authority to forgive sins is valid. But that's the point. That's the real miracle. And so, as amazing as you think it would be if, if you know, Sam was able to get up and walk, and as much as you would never forget the power of God in that for the rest of your life, if you are here this morning and your sins are forgiven because you put your faith in Jesus, you have experienced an infinitely greater miracle than what would have been the case if Sam had just got up and walked. You've experienced that. You know the authority and power of Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. You should never forget that. That is the primary miracle anyone can possibly experience. And it's for anyone. It is, it, it, because, and that's the progression. Lord, go away from me. I am a sinful man. Okay, that's true. You can follow me anyway. Peter, what, what's sin like? Well, sin, sin's like leprosy. Yeah, yeah, it is. Here's a man with leprosy. I have the power and the willingness to heal him. 
Lord, you, you, you heal spiritual lepers? And, yes. And Jesus is teaching, and, and here comes this man down through the roof, paralyzed. What, what, what do spiritual lepers need? What, is, what does a sinful man need when he's at the feet of Jesus? He needs forgiveness of sins. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one. But so that you know I have the ability, I have the authority to forgive this man for his sins. Get up and walk. That's incidental. That's like, that's like the overflow of what Jesus is doing. To show that he has the authority to forgive your sins. That's how you can be a disciple. The only way you can be around Jesus is because he has the authority to forgive your sins. And the only reason he has the authority to forgive your sins is because he's God and also because he died to pay the penalty for your sins. And communion represents the cost of the forgiveness of our sins. Because Jesus did not just say it and by verbal magic wipe them away. He knew that really to forgive us for our sins, someone was going to have to pay the penalty for them. And so when he calls Peter to follow him, when he heals the leper, when he tells this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, he is saying that knowing that that hinges on his death on the cross, his broken body, his shed blood. But his body and blood so cleanses the defiled that when we put our faith in him, when we are touched by this reality, our leprosy is cured and our sins are forgiven. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have experienced a greater miracle than a paralyzed man being able to walk. How did the crowd respond when they saw that? Verse 25 and 26, everyone praised God. They were filled with awe. They rejoiced and they said, we have seen remarkable things today. Well, how long, if you are a believer, how long have you been a Christian? How long since you've experienced that miracle? Do you still rejoice over it? Does it still fill you with awe? Maybe it's been a while since you've let yourself enter into that the, the enormity of what Jesus has done for you. If so, while we're celebrating communion, open up your heart to that. Ask God to restore to you the joy of that miracle, the greatest thing that could happen to anyone, the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to ask uh, the gentlemen to come forward uh, who are going to help distribute these elements. Everyone else, just please bow uh, before the Lord uh, in prayer. Thank him for what he has done. And even be so bold to say that if you're here and, and you don't you don't understand you know what I'm saying or you've never experienced this miracle of new life, uh, ask the Lord to open your heart uh, to see your need of Him, and ask Him to uh, forgive your sins and heal you as well. Just take a moment to pray, and then I'll lead us in prayer.
Lord Jesus, you provided a miracle of catching fish. You provided a miracle in healing leprosy. You provided a miracle in making a paralytic walk. And all three of those things only show us the greater power and authority you have to forgive us of our sins. Lord, help us to see that we are sinful in the presence of a holy God. But then, Lord, also help us to see that we can be reconciled to that God through the purity of Jesus Christ. Open our hearts, cleanse and forgive, and restore to us, if we are at all apathetic, restore to us the rejoicing and awe and glory of being forgiven sinners. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.